I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Hey guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us our good friend, Daniel Saliba. And Daniel is a zookeeper at the Adelaide Zoo, and he's worked at other facilities too. But we're here today to talk to you about something that you're passionate about. It's the Murray-Darling Carpet Python. Indeed. Uh, good afternoon, fellas. Now, mate, um, I've got a pet one called Bill. You sure do. I got from you, and that was the, when I met you. So that was probably five or six years ago now. Indeed, yeah. You've been doing some talks along the Riverland to people that may encounter these snakes. That is correct. Um, there was a, a recovery plan in the making some years ago uh, through the Department of Environment around uh, these uh, state-threatened reptiles. And um, that was a, a point in time when I was actually uh, sparked a bit of an interest in them, uh, being a native carnivore that are threatened and quite a quite a fascinating animal to boot as well. And uh, yeah, uh, I um, was very much aware of that project uh, at the time, helped with a bit of volunteer work with radio telemetry tracking all those years ago, but uh, not much has happened actually since. But it's in more recent years, it's been a, a reinvigorated interest in Murray-Darling carpet pythons and a contract came up whereby I could do some, uh, do a little bit of field work, double in some field work outside of my full-time work. So doing vegetation uh, surveys, just site assessments of places where Murray-Darling carpet pythons in the eastern Mount Lofty ranges and along the Murray south of Blanchetown, where there's the, the least amount of records, and, and reporting that all back to the department. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's been going for a few years now. And combined with that has been... Uh, presentations to local community groups for example the South Australian Herpetology Group I've done one for natural resource management staff at Murray Bridge so quite a few different uh, uh, presentations I've done now so I did one today out at Linga Reserve at Manum um, and that was just for people who, who were local community members who had a particular interest in hearing what we were the work we've been doing and uh, some of the outcomes of our, our survey work and just to learn about Murray Darling carpet pythons in general and to make a case in point, bring along a live specimen, uh, just that tactile specimen for people to sort of touch and feel and really get a feel for the animal that we're trying to um, learn more about basically and get a, a little bit more of a baseline on where they are and how common they are or are not and what sort of places people are seeing them because people see them in all sorts of places like in their pump sheds along the river, crossing roads at night. Just people out canoeing or boating on the river see them basking in the river cliffs. So, yeah. It's super important that you show these people and talk to them about these snakes. A lot of people keep Murray-Darling carpet pythons as pets, but even still today, people are still killing them. They see a snake and they kill it, and they don't even know that it's you know, virtually harmless. That is absolutely right. And uh, it's funny you mentioned that, because at one of my last uh, presentations that was at Yukimara, I told the story of uh, that was told to me by my manager of the project, Amy. A lady had seen a dead Murray-Darling carpet python near a campground near Swan Reach, and uh, she just felt quite confronted by that sighting because it had been very deliberately killed. And being a harmless, non-venomous native carpet python, she saw no rhyme or reason for that snake to have been killed. And she wanted to put up posters or flyers that we've got associated with this current grant, community grant, through Mid-Murray Landcare at that particular campground, that, that spot, so that if those people or people who camp there again see those posters they might actually take a little bit of education away from it go oh not every snake is one that we need to to uh kill uh, it's not necessarily a tiger snake so i told that story at the ukamara presentation and uh 
a lady quietly came up to me afterwards and said, yep, no, no, that was me. And she told me a little bit more about the story. It was a very large carpet snake and, uh, yep, no, it had been killed and she was quite sorry and she's been she did put posters up at that campground a little isolated spot off the dirt road along the river and uh, she says no nope, she's been back there since and her posters have been untouched and they're still there and she's quite happy to do her bit so um it that is one of the the imperative takeaways from the contracts that i've been doing and the message i'm trying to put out there is that these animals have uh, a, a place in the ecosystem they should be respected if, if if we can educate people so that they think twice before they kill a snake or remove it think you know thinking oh i don't really want it in my pump shed and if they move it to another spot where it might actually be more vulnerable to getting disorientated because it's outside of its home range or it might easily get predated on by a wedge-tailed eagle for example um, the less interference with them you've got more animals getting through that then get to reproductive age or can continue to reproduce and ensure that you've still got a few more animals out there adding to the population because every one you lose and they're big animals so you know not too many make it through a clutch out there in the world so the more you can get through and help protect and educate people about the more robust hopefully a population you're helping to maintain rather than just have this constant bleed out because they're vulnerable to lots of different factors land use change has been a big one um the loss of microhabitats so hollow logs for firewood that sort of thing you've got um herbivores chewing away a lot of the understory not letting that regenerate in some areas and again you've got exotic carnivores like foxes and cats and dogs hammering them there's even been you know the theory bandied around that maybe even brown snakes are over predating because they do so well with the uh, european land use change and mice and whatnot maybe they're over eating uh, juveniles for example um, a little carpet snake is very naive in the world and it will make lots of little mistakes and that's why most of them don't make their way through to adulthood so there's a lot of um a lot of learning that a little carpet snake needs to do before it becomes capable of holding its ground and surviving in the uh, in the environment but a lot of the things they used to eat being that sort of native carnivore that they are a lot of the uh, medium-sized mammals, those betongs, bilbies, quolls, all the things they used to feed on are long gone from the ecosystem. So galahs, for example, brush-tailed possums, uh, sleepy lizards, these are the sorts of things that they can subsist on as prey items. But rabbits, believe it or not, have been a um, blessing in disguise in some areas where you may not have had these snakes hold on. Um, in certain uh, uh, rock outcrops in sort of Victoria, for example, that are isolated, you may not still have them there if there weren't rabbits involved because they're that sort of medium-sized prey that these snakes historically used to feed on. So rabbits aren't fantastic for the Australian environment, but it might have been something that has helped some of these remnant isolated population of these snakes in some rural areas actually hold on um, where they otherwise would have long since disappeared. So they do a good job of controlling some of our pests like rabbits as well as rats and mice. They're um, often a welcome addition around uh, rural farmhouses and silos. There's always there's a uh, long history of them many decades ago actually have been purposefully sourced by landowners to actually put in their barns and in, on their properties to help maintain uh, pest rodents. So... Yeah, they certainly have a job to do and they can certainly help us. But again, without projects like what we're doing, trying to learn as much as we can about them uh, so that conservation initiatives have teeth, they have structure, they have a real impact, you need to know as much about them as possible. And um, yeah, there needs to be more survey work done. And just what we're doing is just out a little bit, but we're learning bit by bit where there's a few core populations we didn't know about before and where people are seeing them in their kitchens 
in some places, for example, picking off mice. People like to tell you their stories as much as it might be just, yep, there's a sighting here, yep, there's a sighting there out there in the Mallee. People sort of give you a little winter into their lives and the animals that they've seen and, yeah, it's quite nice to hear. Um, people leaving them alone in their kitchens, in their homes, saying, yep, well, he's behind the refrigerator, he's picking off the mice, he's been there a couple of weeks, we'll just leave him be. It's great. It's <laughs> really? great. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So, what is their range, Dan? You must have travelled South Australia, Victoria, looking for these. Yeah. Uh, are they are they really rare in some areas more that, than others? That's correct. Um, so there are some areas where they seem to be fairly routinely seen. We know in the Riverland in South Australia. So I'm talking Renmark to Morgan down to Blanchetown. They're quite frequently seen by local residents every now and then along the river on the cliffs in pump sheds as i've said before um, they do turn up in suburban loxton for example so they people camping along the river up around um at Peringa and further north you know they will see them at campgrounds and whatnot as i mentioned before where we didn't have very many sightings was south of blanchetown so that is reflected in museum records department of environment records and you just need only look on Atlas of Living Australia to see whether records are kind of scant. So the project I've been working with has been uh, very much south of Blanchetown and into the eastern Mount Lofty Ranges. And the th- reason we did that is because we know historically there were places like Kamantu, Highland Valley, near Mount Barker, Strathalbum region as well, even down to Malang. But with land use change and, and whatnot, there's, you can see that that area has been heavily cleared the most and it's lent itself to the least amount of viable habitat left for them so i have heard of them turning up in areas near murray bridge where they're long since gone so it's it was just to kind of reconnect these areas talk to local landowners do some uh, site surveys and actually active search methods so going out on a hot summer's night with a torch and actually seeing in viable habitat if those animals are still there looking for scats and skins um and to seeing if we could turn any up. Surprisingly, we've turned up quite a few, which is great. And the posters and the flyers that were distributed on Facebook and just put up in uh, local community areas, like the local post office at Sedan, for example, places like that um, have been, yeah, a great point source for people to then record, uh, take photos of Murray Darlings or attach them to an email and send them to... um, send them through to the project uh, managers and, yeah, get get recording cited that way. So it's good. It's been really helpful for us so we can say, yep, there's a few more that have turned up than we otherwise thought there were. We love citizen science, don't we? It's mm. great. So they're threatened down here. Yet in northern Australia, we have so many pythons and they do really well in capital cities and suburban areas. People get them in their roofs. But down here in Adelaide and southern Australia, it's a very different environment, isn't it? Yep, that's right. That's right. I touched on this today as well. Uh, because it's because well, we live in the semi-arid zone, um, our fauna are less tolerant of land use change or changes in the food change, changes in the environment. Whereas northern and eastern Australia, because they're blessed with warmer temperatures, higher rainfall, more vegetation, more species, they seem more robust to change. Uh, the correlation I like to make is between the brush turkeys in eastern Australia and the mallee fowl here in South Australia. So land use changes, habitat loss for the mallee fowl in South Australia, they've got no real tolerance to it you know they cat, uh, cats and foxes going into the environment and picking up young they're just they're not very robust or able to cope with those changes and that's why they've been declining whereas in eastern australia you've got the equivalent the brush turkey that seem to thrive in urban brisbane you need only drive out of the airport car park and they're running off into the 
ornamental grove of plants. It's crazy. It really is. Um, whereas their equivalent, the uh, coastal carpet python, um, I've read in reference that roughly 50% of homes in Brisbane have evidence of carpet snakes in this, in, uh, through scats and skins. So it's shed skins and roofs and in gardens and they're just a everyday thing in in brisbane uh, but uh, yeah so yeah. just quickly say my grandfather had one nesting in his front yard in brisbane and it was great and every day i'd go there and have a look and there's this big snake curled up on something and then one day i went there and she was gone and there was all these little deflated eggs with slits in them and i was like oh wow so i was quickly looking for the babies hoping i wouldn't find mum because i was only young yeah and i found there yeah, two little <laughs> to babies feed off of. <laughs> <laughs> and there you go and that's another thing I, I touched on today at today's presentation is um if we were in somewhere like brisbane that we just wouldn't have this sort of workshop presentation we had today because if i said you know as a jump off point um who here has seen a, a carpet snake before everyone will put up their hand it's just not a they're not a threatened part of their ecosystem up there they're doing very well um and the carpet python radiation in Australia is split up into different recognised subspecies and species. So, um, where you know, it depends which taxonomists you talk to. But uh, the the variety found along the Murray uh, Darling corridor are the ones we're uh, referring to today, and they are um, their colour and pattern is quite different from those in in eastern Australia, from northern Australia, where they're doing quite well. So they're our equivalent that are adapted to the woodlands. They're a woodland snake. Um, those are river box, river, uh, river red gum woodlands. Um, and their pattern reflects that. They blend in quite well with the leaf litter in a red gum forest. Uh, they just look like a, a, a branch, just which is great for them. It means that uh, predators coming along like a wedgie or a dingo historically something that would come along uh, may not actually see it because it's that crypsis the species adopts um, but in turn the prey that they like to eat so the sleepy lizards the brush-tailed um, possums don't see them and quite haphazardly might cross some paths in front of them bang carpet snakes got its food so that's how they've evolved and that's how they've adapted and there is a fair bit of variation in the color and pattern but their paired blotched pattern um, down down their back is is fairly standard for that species so they can be black as a ground color they might have bright red through their pattern they're spectacular looking animals those ones so yeah they're a very distinct species that were a uh, form of carpet snake that we're talking about so that's the metcalfy that's the one do they cross over with anything else so in the in queensland it it it, it can be quite blurred when you look at maps of australia and a distribution map that highlights whether coastal carpet python and the Murray-Darling carpet python further inland occur. Um, it looks like there might be a, a zone of hybridisation or a bit of overlap uh, in central Queensland between the two. Um, there's also... that. This is also, from what I understand, the case in New South Wales between coastal carpet pythons and Murray-Darlings, the further inland, um, but also potentially diamond python, Murray-Darling distribution closer towards Sydney. And that's only from references um, that I've found in older books. Um, so whether there's a certain amount of natural hybridisation or crossover between the two is potential. Um, certainly in captivity, people under artificial circumstances can cross them with other Morelia yeah, python sure. species and produce whatever mm. um, those people desire to. But naturally, only a, a, a small amount of hybridisation would occur. Yeah. What about, like... Yeah, you know, the Murray Darling carpet python coming down the river system. Yeah, and then we find them in the southern Flinders ranges and and varying other ranges you know, north of the Eyre Peninsula. What's going on there? Yep. So from what we understand, based on uh, 
genetics uh, based on the distribution of these animals. It looks like the West Australian species of Southwest Carpet Python, known as Imbricata, have come that there are come along the Nullarbor. They're in Air Peninsula. They're on offshore islands like St Francis Island. And it looks like, based on genetics that I've read about in reference material, is uh, Imbricata have travelled up historically through the Flinders Ranges and an isolated population of carpet pythons up in the Flinders Ranges that have their own colour and pattern distinct from uh, the West Australian Imbricata and the eastern form of South Australian carpet python, the Murray Darlings. Um, they've just got an isolated uh, new type of carpet python undescribed as yet subspecies up there so or type of carpet python depending what vernacular you want to adopt when describing these animals so um in south australia we've got so we what we uh, refer to as imbricata on the west coast the undescribed form in the flinders ranges uh we've got metcalfi um murray darling on the eastern but also in northeast south australia along the cooper basin they've got you know, if, you, if you're just talking generally, they'd also be referred to as Murray-Darling carpet pythons that are along the Cooper Creek, you know, which also, uh, from what I understand, joins the Darling River. Um, but that population sort of in that part of the state as well. But then I've read other reference material that say, oh, there's a Cooper Basin form of Murray-Darling carpet python. So it gets highly subjective how you split or lump these particular snakes with other populations of uh, carpet snakes. So um, I'd be very interested with the hard data, with the genetics that are done and tested in future exactly with and with the refinement of this technology, um, what we understand and know about these animals absolutely without any shades of grey or any sort of um, pause for thought about exactly how we describe differences or lump them together as sameness, really. So the undescribed ones in the Flinders, are they the ones in the gammon ranges as well? That's is correct. That say, the gammon range? Yeah. yeah. And look, if you look at distribution maps produced by museums and whatnot, it's just the Murray-Darling carpets come all the way up through the Mount Lofties and up into the Flinders ranges. Um, but it's a fairly gross general kind of a way of describing these animals when you've seen them in the wild when you've seen countless photos of them when you've kept them and bred them those flinters ranges animals are so very distinct from those along the murray river that you can just you just see it immediately in a photo go yep that's that animal's from blinman yep that animal uh is from uh loxton or berry or somewhere along the murray you just you see that difference and from what i understand for whatever reason the northern Mount Lofty Ranges, Murray Darlings seem to sort of taper off and almost stop in distribution. And then in the southern Flinders, around Talawi Gorge, and from uh, very recent uh, photos that have come to light, even Nariti in um, the mid north, there seems to be where the, the Flinders Ranges form seem to sort of cease as far south as they go on the Murray Darlings. Again, in the northern Mount Lofties go as far north as they're going to go, and there isn't any crossover from what we understand. But our understandings of these animals are fairly, um, you know, fairly at their baseline. There's, there's a lot we don't know, and it would be good to have people out there studying them and students sort of making it their, their projects and their theses. So we, we can all be uh, wise for the knowing of what exactly is going on with them and where they occur and what they're doing in these areas. It's great to think that there's still work to be done yeah. on, on those pythons. That's yeah, right. Great. Yep. Yeah, a top-order predator. You liken them to something else, don't you? 
like a leopard or something? Oh, <laughs> that's um, what, what I've referred them to, to them before is that the uh, snow leopards of the Mount Lofty Ranges, they're uh, very hard to hard come to across. Find. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've, I, I'd hate to think of all the money I've spent in petrol and late nights I've spent looking for them just to look at centipedes and rocks and trees in the dark. It's, um, yeah, but look, every now and then you, it pays off and you find an animal and you can photograph it and document it and just say, yep, no, we've got a confirmed sighting from here now. So, uh, yeah. Just coming back to the southern Flinders population and how it's quite disjunct from the southern lofties. It seems, yep. You were telling me about the river where it bends and goes into where the mouth currently is. It yep. hasn't always been that way. No, it from what we understand in the geological records and faunal composition in that part of the state seems to tell the story of the Murray River, from what I understand, used to actually run straight west into uh, Gulf St. Vincent. Um, if the Gulf was there at that time, I'm not fantastic right now with my geological time scale. But what's happened at some point is with geological processes is that at some point the, the Murray's then no longer run west at Morgan, it's then started to jut south and carved a path through gorges south down towards um, the Southern Ocean. And that's now become the pathway of the Murray um, south from Morgan. Oh, so the Murray never used to come... From what I understand. Oh, wow. From what I understand. And from what I... And this is, again, reference material I read some years ago. That's the reason you've got lace monitors isolated to this day in the Southern Flinders Ranges because that's a river corridor species in South Australia and the only reason that they're, ne- they're in the southern Flinders is because it's a relic of times when the Murray used to run straight west It makes sense, I mean it's a disjunct population and it's the most westerly distributed population of lace monitors. Of various, yep Well something needs to make sense of the fact that there's laces at Mambray Creek and <laughs> places like that yeah. it's, it just, it's a bit weird isn't it that yep. they're there because they're not here, we've got heath mm. monitors and sand monitors here they, yeah. just, they would probably do okay here mm-hmm. yeah mm. yep. there, was a, there was a wild one running around Christie's Creek, did you ever hear about that? Anyone no hear about that? yeah, it was, uh, people I know have seen it, it was getting around Big, a big one too, obviously an escape pet yeah. mm. living off dog food and scraps I imagine yeah that's right yeah people's cats yeah. <laughs> absolutely so mate you've gone out in the field looking for them I, I have yeah and in certainly in my just out of pure personal interest as a um, as a herper for those unfamiliar with the term it's just shortened abbreviation for herpetologist but uh, yes so I spent a lot of time looking for them along the river um, talking to locals about them as well up along the river who share their lives um, alongside them but yes, so I've, I've certainly in more recent years had a more structured reason to do it through this contract that I've been doing, just yeah, actively searching for them. And again, it's just to put a dot on a map and present it to say, yes, they're also here, they're also here. We can verify that they're there because a lot of the anecdotal evidence that we've had from members of the public is, oh, yes, no, we've seen one over this way by the creek in September. And while well, we went to pick it up, but then we didn't because we would double guess what we were doing. And so it's just good for someone who... Who, if, if these people can't provide evidence or photos, which in this day and age people very often do, but people have said they've got them, but they haven't got the proof, so I've got to go and verify it. So it is a lot of... It, it can involve daytime searching as well, um, the right time of year, certainly not middle of June, um, but say uh, September through to, um, through, through to April, you can see them basking, you know, mid-morning, that sort of thing, getting warmed up. Less so in summer, they're more active in summer at night. 
Um, but during the days, they will call a month, uh, spring and autumn, they'll bask first thing in the morning or even very late in the afternoon. So it's about lining up your active searching with when they're actually active, so you might see them. But one of the interesting things that's very rarely observed but it has been documented is um, in September, from September breeding time, is you'll end up with males who are very single-minded. It's breeding season for them. They've had a long sleep, they're hungry, they're... Um, reproductive processes have kicked in and those males go looking for females. So an animal that's uh, evolved to camouflage, an animal that's very cryptic for, for reasons of evading predators and also prey that they're hunting, um, become very bold and obvious. They almost become single-minded and they'll cross open areas and they'll not pay you any mind as they're wandering around hot on the track of females. And you'll even get as I was getting to uh, clusters of males over one receptive female. This has been seen twice at Blanchetown, you know, like a female on a branch, a gum branch, for example, and multiple males all seeming to tolerate each other all entwined over her in a mating ball. And I know someone who's personally seen the same thing at his property up uh, near Blanchetown in his hallway. I couldn't, when he described it to me, he said, oh, there was a mating ball up, up high along the ridge of my hallway. I'm like, you yeah, know, that's exactly what you would have seen. That I knew what that meant. But I've also, this has also been seen with diamond pythons in Sydney as well. Whereas when it comes to breeding season with carpet snakes, coastal carpets in Brisbane, they often are seen to combat each other and they have these quite impressive, the males sort of come up to about, they might raise both of their bodies about a third up off the ground and they'll entwine and push and shove as much as they can with no limbs um, and entwine and it's all a battle of strength who can topple the other or fatigue the other so that they've dominated that area because there might be a receptive female in that region and there's great videos on YouTube of two males on a, a roof and then they fall off single-minded in their fight into a swimming pool and it's impressive to see but we've all been there we've all done it <laughs> <laughs> well maybe you have Adrian, it's a great it's a great dance yeah that, it that is they have there you know it's a fantastic thing to yep. see but breeding bulls that's that's amazing yeah to mm. see them like that mm. it is I've, something that very rarely is seen but be impressive and it has been documented I've seen southern brown bandicoots do it I've, really yeah only once and they were standing up on tippy toes and they looked so funny it's like somebody was holding them by a piece of string and they were trying to go at each other did funny. they sw- uh, fall in a swimming pool they did not no, no. not as good then is so it didn't sit, no um, is it when you say there's a receptive female that's obviously then she's leaving some kind of a scent and the guys are picking that with their tongues yep Mm. I find the sense of smell crazy. I mean, being bipedal now, our sense of smell is pretty average. I don't know if I've mentioned on the show before, but I heard about a scientist that every day for one hour, he would walk around quadrupedally sniffing the ground. And apparently the ground stinks, like there's all different smells. So you can imagine how you could tune into smelling the ground. And it got me thinking about certain animals like, like elephants. Their trunks are nostrils. No, they can smell with those trunks, mm-hmm. so they can still smell the ground. And giraffes with their big long necks, they can get down and smell the ground. Leave that with you. Um, so that's a receptive female, leaving the smell around. The boys go crazy. They don't care if you see them. Uh, you know, I'm going to be cryptic every time of the year, but bugger it. The sex drive is just overpowering. Yeah. It's insane. Yep. And I think it's more to the point that we see it is because uh, they tend to be more diurnal day active during spring because it's still nippy at night might be quite cool so day is the only time that it's actually up to about 30 and warm enough for them to be able to do a lot of those metabolic processes and it's when they seem to be the most bold and outgoing and seem to be in the open during the day when we're active as well and when sightings seem to be more um, at a higher frequency really and it's almost certainly because they're single-minded they're off looking for those girls 
I can imagine someone camping on the river just absolutely shitting themselves, yeah. having like a 2.5 metre long Murray Darling carpet path and storming through their camp. Yep. Hilarious. Yep. Or, or one there with four or five mouths around. <laughs> Yeah, like, what do I do? Do we move? Yeah. Yeah, do we, uh, and they're a big do we animal. Watch? Do we watch? Yeah. <laughs> and these are an animal that... They are a big animal. Yeah, they, on average, they grow to up to about two and a half metres. There's an outlier specimen apparently documented at just shy of four metres. So they're a big animal. Um, and I've, you know, read, uh, you know, I've read of uh, seasoned naturalists out there in the Flinders sitting around um, first thing in the morning and a great big snake comes slithering deliberately through the salt bush and it's tense for a moment. And they're like, oh, what is that? What snake is that? And they're like, oh, it's a carpet snake. And they just relax. So um, it, it can be quite confronting even to the experienced among us to um, suddenly have a snake in your personal space is quite confronting. But it's just that, that that knowledge that educate knowing exactly what it is and it's okay but it doesn't mean that because it's non-venomous you go and interact with it it's actually illegal um doesn't mean that you you know it's a free-for-all you still gotta leave it alone not touch it um and it doesn't mean that it won't bite oh they can be savage they can be filthy tempered animals Mm. it's all about defense it's all about self-protection uh, it's not necessarily an aggressive thing. It's just a defensive thing when they can be. But they're generally placid as a species, uh, a form of carpet python. But, yeah, they can be quite narky. I've had ones I wouldn't want to go anywhere near. People know that they, they suffocate their prey. They constrict their prey. So yes. this is kind of people think, well, then they don't bite. Well, they <laughs> they catch their prey with their face first. Being a python. Head full of teeth, that's right. Yep. We as keepers have many, many scars to prove that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's quite strange, even in captivity, like some of the pythons in the world that, that I've kept you don't need you know you wouldn't combat mouse Murray Darling's one of those diamonds another one of them and, and many offshore pythons that you just don't need to combat mouse they, mm-hmm. they can live together quite easily and it's mm. pretty uh, great to hear that that is absolutely from the wild as well absolutely mm. um, I have heard of male Murray Darling's captive ones in captivity put together breeding season and um, they've torn each other almost to shreds yeah wow so it's there are no hard and fast rules and i don't know what motivators or drivers lead them to that sort of savagery i um, think sometimes in those situations it's just not actually giving them the correct winter so they're not <laughs> they're not fully in that courtship mode sure so, that yeah. may well be the mm. case yep there's a lot of unknowns yeah i've done um a lot of wildlife shows around the riverland and I've had people come up to me and show me photos of Murray Darling carpet have pythons. They? they sure have. And one of them, like you say, was right out in the middle of the daytime, yep. which was interesting, laying by the river. So, you know, just confirm what you're saying. Yeah, of course, they do bask in the daytime sometimes. And unfortunately, one of them was one that the people had killed and they didn't know what it was. And this was um, people from Truro and it had been in their lounge room at Truro and they were all shocked. They were watching TV. Suddenly there's this giant snake and they killed it. And I had to, I told them what it was, and they didn't know, and they actually had felt bad that, that oh, I was just a python. Now I feel terrible. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's not so much that people just want to kill snakes; mm. they um, they just don't know that there are these, you know, pythons around. Absolutely, especially in regional South Australia, where they come across so infrequently, people don't necessarily have the the history growing up to assume that that is an animal out there, a part of their environment. So it's quite confronting, especially in. Uh, rare circumstance where they show up in the house yeah and they still turn up around like you say the eastern lofty ranges places like Mount Barker and things but it's getting Mm. tricky now because so many people have escaped carpet pythons don't they yeah 
There's no way you can really tell. I mean, you can look at it and go, well, that's a South Australian form of carpet python. Yep. But is it a captive? I mean, is there any way you can tell? I mean, we had Kath Kemper on the show, and she suggested that people microchip their snakes. Like, all snakes should be microchipped as a way of... Um, I don't, yeah, I think sometimes that still wouldn't clear it up unless people got snakes mm. from the wild and then microchipped them as that. But I, I still don't think it maybe clear it up too much. It's too hard Good now, point. Isn't it? Yeah, good point. It yeah. could have been a poached snake that was never yeah. microchipped. Yeah, yeah it's... That's true it's too. Difficult now, mm. and it's a bit expensive process if you've got like two hundred snakes at home to microchip. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. would. <laughs> it definitely would. Yeah, um, I, I was quite surprised only recently to learn um, by one of the local snake catchers just the frequency of pythons that are the the point the source of a call out in suburban Adelaide per season. I was quite shocked. It's dozens, isn't it? It's yeah. quite surprising. Um, yeah, so I think the only thing that would lend itself to what's you know, if you're out further out from Mount Barker and a Murray Darling turned up, you'd be very hard pressed to know. Well, was it an escapee, or was it someone's, um, or is it a native one that's part of an older remnant population? But certainly in areas where they've never been known before, and one turns up, you know, in the cooler, wetter areas further west, you go, yeah, that's not remnant. You could make that assumption. Yeah, you'd have to be sceptical, wouldn't you? Mm. Bloody snake food showing up behind us. (laughs) What's that crinia? Common froglet from the pond there. It's ambient, Stephen. (laughs) Sorry, not not snake food. All of the above. (laughs) It certainly sets the scene. Well, uh, we had a Murray-Darling carpet python turn up here, not on my property, but um, someone found one end of the road there. Right. Um, A baby one. Yep. So you've got to think that's an escape pit being up here in the high rainfall area, wouldn't you? There's no historical records from this part of the, the Adelaide Hills. It's interesting that it was a baby one, because usually when you find baby uh, snakes, it means that there's a um, there's there's been a, a hatching event somewhere nearby. So um, could have been an escapee, but there are no no records of them native to this part of the hills. What about it's interesting? The, it is. What about on the plains, Adelaide Plains? No, no records. No historical records. So uh, for whatever reason, uh, through their own. Um, uh, you know, historical um, distribution. They never really seem to have made it up over the Mount Lofty Ranges through the hills down onto the Adelaide Plains. There was something that kind of kept them in that drier, warmer, rockier part of the Mount Lofties and further east towards the Murray, which is the, the whole reason that they came into this part of South Australia was simply following the Murray River, an associated habitat not too far out. But, yeah, they, they never occurred on the Adelaide Plains or through the wetter part of the hills that we're aware of. There was no historical records of it. Another interesting sighting that I heard about, and you would have heard about this one, Daniel, was um, there was one living on somebody's houseboat. Have you heard, have you heard about this one? I have heard of them turning up on houseboats. Yeah, I believe yeah. this one was living on somebody's houseboat. Ah. I've also had a lace monitor just flopping up on people's houseboats <laughs> <Yeah>. too. <laughs> you know, oh, we get campsite animals in Australia, so there are certain, like, Manbrake Creek has yeah, lace Manbrake. monitors that'll come and visit, and these animals get pretty confident, people feed them, yep. and they're getting fed from houseboats apparently. Yep. No, you've triggered a memory. Someone sent me a Facebook link of a, a carpet python on someone's houseboat at Renmark. Um, and as it was disturbed basking on this houseboat, it was then it then felt quite unsettled by the whole thing and then slithered off and swam across the river. So it does happen. That's so cool. Hmm. That is so cool. I'd enjoy that. Yeah. <laughs> Authentic South Australian yeah. experience. Yeah. And you're going to take us out to see them one day. I would love to, yeah. yeah. We'll go on a herping trip. It will be fun. Absolutely. Again, it so might do you get a, a waiver because you're studying them? Like, obviously, me and Adrian couldn't go into the bush and catch, handle, photograph. 
legally. Python like that, would you be allowed to? No. So um, there are regulations, there are permits involved with uh, touching, um, certainly handling and, and in any way uh, holding those snakes. Uh, but you can certainly observe them from a certain distance and photograph them. That's yeah. within legal parameters. But yeah, if it comes to restraining handling, that that's a, um, a legislative requirement that you're authorised to do that to have the permits to do it. Um, and with what I'm doing, I've got no reason to do anything other than observe them. If I find scats or skins, I'll just take photos of those and submit them as evidence, yep. But yeah, there's there's no touching of these snakes involved at all. So with the work you've done, do you think there there's a next process that needs to be done to protect these animals? Yeah, I submitted some recommendations when I first did this contract under different circumstances some years ago. Yeah, I submitted recommendations. Um, and a lot of it, there is... In Victoria, for example, there's they're a, uh, a little further down the road with their um, research on these uh, snakes. There have certainly been universities involved. Um, uh, and again, a lot of what we know about Murray-Darling carpet python distribution and habit uh, and movements with radio telemetry tracking and rabbit burrows, warrens, rabbit movements through the seasons, how that relationship's intertwined, that's come out of research done in Victoria. So... Um, some of my recommendations also sort of uh, uh, certainly were lent from and then further inspired from uh, uh, work done in Victoria. So around, uh, it, it would be great to be able to fence off certain uh, creek systems from stock just to preserve a lot of that riparian zone. Uh, female carpet pythons will often, they'll spend their winters up in granite inselbergs, so outcrops and cliffs and whatnot, uh, but they'll actually go down to creeks, for example, during summer and sit on their clutch of eggs for two months they prefer those open grassy areas and i've heard of that in the mount lofty ranges as well they'll be found by creek lines on their clutches of eggs so to be able to protect areas like that from stock um so sorry to go back so you're saying that they they, they've been seen nesting just out in just the grass like in in thick reed tussocks and that sort of thing so they're still broken up and sheltered from the elements to a point but that's where they seem some of them seem to prefer to have their clutches of eggs so being able to protect uh, one of the things I've thought would be to um, fence off rock outcrops so that you don't have herbivores going up there and chewing up a lot of the understory. It looks like um, they do prefer a woodland with a healthy understory still because it helps at that mid-story and ground level to break up their form as they move around. They don't like open woodlands with no understory at all. Um, they don't seem to like to move too far without cover, so they like there to be a bush or a hollow log or a little rock screese or sort of outcrop um, as they're moving around so they don't want to just traverse more than 500 metres in the open they're like some sort of cover so to be able to put back replace hollow logs re- let, allow regeneration to take place in some woodlands, re-vegetate even create corridors that link up creeks with rock outcrops There are um, these are some of the uh, recommendations also encouraging landowners to only apply rodenticide in winter when these snakes aren't feeding and active uh, when it comes to managing rabbits, not to blast or manage uh, warrens during summer when these snakes might be active and feeding and utilising them, do it in winter. Um, so there's lots of different ways that you can help on the ground actively. And it's also education. It's doing these presentations that I've been doing. It's uh, doing uh, presentations for school groups like you've done yourself with the live Murray-Darling carpet python. It's about you know setting up the next generation to recognise, respect and understand these animals and provide a little room for them in in their world so that they don't um fear them in any way and again it's you don't want to lose specimens out of the system one by one by ignorance or through people injuring them or you know uh, removing them from where they're living in a shed to 
somewhere down by the river where they might be vulnerable it's not interfering with them so you want to maintain as many in the system as possible because every every carpet snake still at their counts so just to talk about loss of habitat and land use change so there'd be a lot less tree hollows now so the tree hollows mm. of the, especially the big old river red gums would be so appealing for them yes. in that corridor and now that we have less of that you think the rabbit burrows are maybe now a way they can escape the elements because it gets bloody cold in the riverland mm. and really really hot and I wonder if historically wombat burrows or maybe even still are part of that um, ecosystem for them too. Do they eat wombats? Wombats are bloody heavy things. I think a little wombat would be um, fair game for a very large snake, like carpet snake, yeah, just a little one. That That's makes me very, sad. I didn't want to hear that. Oh, no. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love snakes and I love wombats. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, look, most wombats are, um, uh, yeah, they're able to stand their ground. Yeah. It's just a little, little sick one that... Um, could be picked off. Wombats crush, probably crush them with their bony bums, wouldn't they? Wombats, yeah, they're really bony bums. They're strong animals, aren't they? they yeah, are, they can stand their ground. Yeah, mm. yeah. Good. And and most of the like a, a lot of times where we camp down in the Riverland, there's potentially these animals. So yes, people take their own firewood and don't chop down firewood and use tree hollows and things like that to fuel their fire. Take mm. your own firewood. Yep what we're mm. saying here yep mm. <laughs> yep absolutely we, we had james smith on the show talking about nesting boxes i found that really interesting i just i was that's what i was getting at with the burrow thing is the um nesting boxes are probably a, a, a good idea but like a river red gum is going to be so much more insulative than a thin you know plywood nesting box absolutely yeah mm. and also with the egg incubation i thought like do they incubate in burrows or tree hollows or yes they do that above. too yep um they do seem to prefer things like ground level hollow logs um uh, sort of rock crevices or rock hollows you know in an outcrop there aren't too many records of them uh, i know with brettles carpet python they've certainly been documented in lofty sort of higher up tree hollows as well but um i don't think it's been recorded with murray darling it's certainly feasible but they seem to prefer more terrestrial spots to lay their eggs clutches of eggs yep and again in grass tussocks and reed thickets yeah that's amazing to think that they lay there like lay out in thickets and things yeah that's no pretty I've, awesome I've mm. heard, i know with studies in with diamond pythons so radio telemetry tracking studies of them in sydney it shows that same pattern of um they'll spend their winters in rocky sort of outcrops and they'll move through the woodlands and uh, through the barns during summer and the females will have their clutches of eggs by the in the just by a creek just in the reeds and the grass um and again up near mount barker at wisto i've heard of a female that was found in a clutch of eggs by by rodwell creek so it's when i go looking for them in summer i'll also quite happily look through the walk along those creek margins and through the grass to see if i can find one there as well it's not just hollows it's not just the rocks they use a dynamic range of microhabitats in that sort of general habitat region there was that that property up near mount barker at highland valley that big rocky property we had a look at it many years ago when it was for sale and um the previous owner had permission to legally breed Murray Darlings and release them into the wild. She was ahead of her times. Yeah. 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 Um, and look, from what we understand, the um, she released quite a number of snakes, upwards of nearly 200 little ones from captive bread stock onto that property. And from what we understand, the landowners to this day still in that general region of Highland Valley, um, Wisto sort of area along the Rodwell Creek people still find them to this day in their sheds and crossing roads and um, you know what um, 
previous to then, we had very, very few records and anecdotal evidence of them in that area. And since then, big snakes are still turning up from those early 2000s when that project was occurring. So we can, in leaps and bounds, make generalizations that that actually quite that worked, that pulse of juveniles into that region at that time. Up near Wistow is there, yeah, has worked because there are plenty of carpet snakes getting around still. I still get stories about them turning up in people's roofs and, and whatnot. So. And there's, there's people that own big plots of land up yes. there that don't really themselves know what's going on or don't talk to people about what they've got on the land. So they're, they're, they could be in more places than we think. That's right. It's rugged, they're rugged properties too. Mm. Yeah. yeah, That's correct. Yep. Rocky, steep. So with the information that, um, that you've got, you'll yep. obviously use that to see how they're doing in the future? It can. It can. Um, it could certainly be used in reference potentially as a baseline for we know for a fact based on photographs, etc., uh, shown, uh, provided as evidence that, yes, they occurred in these areas. We know that for a fact. So if they are never recorded again for whatever reason, well, we have evidence that they were there. It doesn't reflect abundance. We don't know if there's more or less of them. We, uh, you know, moving forward from this point, we just know with what we have accrued where they have been. Uh, have you found um, all range of sizes, adults, young, hatchies? I've only seen, from what I've seen, of the smallest I found was a male, I think, from his behaviour and the way he was moving around. He was about two years old, I would have guessed, but um, that was younger. the smallest. I've found quite large ones along the river as well. I've never found a little baby. They're very good at hiding, even in suburban Brisbane. Um, I've heard that they only seem to turn up or get routinely found at a certain larger size. So the little ones... The neonates, we call them, are so cryptic. They're much, much better at hiding away from us and evading a de- detection and thinking how vulnerable they are. That makes sense. Anything, just about anything out there uh, that's a carnival, eat a little harmless carpet snake. What about females? Do you find females with clutches? Any I haven't yet. I'm trying to get evidence of them actually breeding still yeah, um, in, in no. the wild. That would be great to see. What would the average clutch size be? About 15 to 30 animals or so? That's correct. Yeah. And, like, that's a high amount of animals because most of those would be food for things like historically quolls these days, always kookaburras and birds of prey and cats and things now. But it'd be fantastic to know, like, where these animals go, you know, how many make it. I mean, you guys would know having, you know, all of us here have bred pythons, some more than others. Some pythons can be really hard to feed. Mm. And yet, as soon as they come out of an egg, you know, like most reptiles, they know exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I find that fascinating, like to see a baby python's first kill in the wild and video it. There you go, David Attenborough, if you're listening, which I'm sure you are. Challenge. <laughs> Challenge <out there>. for <laughs> you. <laughs> Let us know how you go, David. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Challenge for all our listeners. But imagine, like, if you, if you could be there when the clutch hatched, I mean, it's not outside of the realms of possibility. And to, would we just put a tracker in? 30 baby snakes and just see what happens I mean you'd probably find them in birds it would be great to try and do that yeah interesting Mm. if you can find a female with a clutch or just know where a clutch is certainly um, yep Mm. currently being incubated and uh, wait for all the little ones to hatch out and then if you want to 
be um, pedantic enough to follow a number of those little ones as they move through the landscape and see which ones first catch off skinks or geckos in the night. It'd be crazy, wouldn't it? You'd need a team of people that don't like money and have lots of spare time <laughs> out in the bush. That's me out. Nothing wrong with that. I wonder if you put a tracker on a um, female Murray-Darling Garper python around breeding season, just out of interest to see you know, what she ends up doing. Yeah, because the clutch at that point, if she's laid a clutch, you can segregate her off at that point and make sure you're there when the clutch hatches. Sort of thing. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. Look, there are different ways you could do it within legal mm. parameters, but yeah, yeah. It's Just be interested to see how well they're breeding now, you know. If you're only finding four-foot, three-foot animals mm. at the moment, then... Mm. Mm. I suppose you said, like, one was found nearly the better part of four metres. That's great. There, There is a record of one, uh, yes, that was almost four metres long. I don't know the, uh, the, the story behind that one, wh- where it was found and who did the measurements, but... Um, yes, I've certainly come up a number of times that the outlier animal was nearly four metres long. That's a big snake eating some big prey. Um, I imagine the carpet pythons up in the Flinders, they'd still get to some quite large sizes because they've still got rock wallabies as prey. And they tend to grow... Their growth rate is in accordance to prey availability, but uh, to a degree, I think, prey size as well. So I think you'll get snakes up there in the Flinders that would certainly dwarf potentially some of those that you'd routinely find along the river that wouldn't have prey quite as large as a rock wallaby. Mate, is there anything else you'd like to add? Just a final note, final thought, conservation message? Just education. Uh, educate yourself about what's in your local region and what you might find. And uh, yeah, just, just spare a thought for all animals that share our, our world and uh, including Snakes. I know it's not a sexy subject for a lot of people, but... Uh, you mean the snow leopard of the Mount Lofty the Ranges? The snow leopard of the Mount Lofty <laughs> Ranges. They've, um, you never know when something might be rare and endangered, threatened, vulnerable, or of significance. So document whatever you might find out there in your travels, um, in your everyday lives, driving around. I think there are people coming home at night that have seen these carpet snakes on their, on, on warm nights around Manham, for example, and that's just people living their everyday lives, and that's still a fantastic important sighting for us that that gets recorded so you never know what might be might be of significance so um just give it these animals give all all snakes a a wide berth respect them um and only ever have them removed by a professional from your home or shed or whatnot if you absolutely must if if someone's got murray darling carpets on their land or or they see one or think they see one yeah who can they contact yeah just just uh, send a, a photo, um, attach it to an email or, or other sort of mediums that we have available these days to, um, at, at this point, uh, Mid-Murray Landcare at Canberra or just to your local Department of Environment office in regional South Australia. So we're going to put your phone number on the website as well? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yes. Put my number out there. Send me all the uh, Python photos. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can put my number out there for that. <laughs> we won't be doing either That's of those things. Awesome. Thank um, you, mate, Daniel. thank you. And we might right. even put some links up to the NRM people you mentioned as well. So sure, sure. Yep, I'll talk to the science. powers that be for sure. Thanks for giving us a uh, another medium, another voice for these animals that have for so long not had a voice or a representation. So thank you. It's very important, and um, just yeah, with the captive trade, people are learning to love them and you know see snakes very differently through having. Having pets, absolutely, um, and that's another good thing. Is uh, historically the the pet trade, the illegal pet trade, was fueled by wild caught animals, and in this day and age, that aspect of it has certainly diminished because the captive trade in in um, 
Murray-Darling carpet pythons are sustained by, yep, people now who can just freely breed them with information available on the internet and other reference materials. They're quite happy. They can do it at home, um, pair them up at the right time of year and get their clutches through. And a lot of so many homes in not just South Australia but in Australia share their family homes, share their, li- their lives with carpet pythons, Murray-Darlings, because they lend themselves so well to captivity and they're so placid generally. So there are a lot more people out there who are sensitive to their needs and their importance than ever before. So I don't feel like I've got such a harsh audience when I do these presentations or uninformed because so many people have come across them. And using Bill uh, as a uh, ambassador animal for Animals Anonymous is fantastic to go out there. So many people have met Bill. So the impact that you make for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people, is cannot be understated. So Bill Murray, darling, carpet python. Yep. Thank you, Daniel. That's um, all right. Mate, that was great. Really enjoyed yep. it. Good. Thanks so much. Thanks, Daniel. Awesome. You're welcome. Thank you. And thank you for listening.